Yes, a hot dog is a sandwich. Welcome to Pause It For Me, <laughs> Season 3. We have now made it to Season 3. 20 episodes per season. Woo. We made it through 40 episodes. Only took us like 38 or 39 episodes to realize that I could turn off the fridge, not by uh, unplugging it from behind, but by switching off the breaker. <laughs> Hooray for me. Well, now you know. <laughs> not that I ever pulled it out from behind, but... Yeah. Yeah. Life is all about experiences. Yeah. So there's something new this season. I've always been able to see Andrew's lovely face during these podcast recordings, but now you, the audience, will get to as well. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can see us in all our glory and all our reactions to everything pertaining to chatting about these movies. Now, I'll say this much. We're probably not going to do this for every episode, or at least I'm not committing to it. Because that's, that's a lot of weight to put on the shoulders. Because it takes like three to four times longer to set up this podcast if we're doing two-angle video than just doing audio. So, you know, not to mention the lighting as well. So it's a lot, you know, what I like to do with the podcast is I like to finish the movie and then immediately record the episode. Mm -hmm. And when we just have the microphone sitting on the table, it's not a big deal. We can set it up in advance or we can set it up in a hurry. But this is like clogging up our living room. Here. Yeah, well, that's why we hadn't done it for the first 40-some yeah. episodes. <laughs> exactly. We had just done the cups, which are still here, by the way. You can't really see They're them. They're just a little more low-key. Yeah, and I've got a water going, and I've also just cracked open a uh, Cranberry Rattler from Perth Brewery. So yeah, cheers to that. Good. Thanks for, I mean, it's not a sponsor, but. I mean, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> so you can still see the cups. But uh, in addition to the extra workload of setting everything up, it also takes much longer to edit if I'm cutting sure. multi-cam uh, back and forth. So we're, it is what we're, you I do. Think, <laughs> yeah, we're going to reduce the, well, I, I do it all day and then yes. I have to do it on the weekend too, which mm -hmm. is fine. It's fun. It's a self-imposed challenge. But yeah. it just means, you know, if it, if it takes too long, then that means less episodes. So I think it's season one we were aiming for like hour-long episodes – Put, talking about each movie for about 30 minutes and then we ended up doing most episodes i think we're like hour and a bit mm -hmm. season two we were aiming for 45 minute episodes talking about instead of two movies one movie for 45 minutes so shorter episodes but longer movie discussions and aiming for 45 minutes usually got us to like an hour so i think now <laughs> we'll go back to 30 minutes per movie 30 minute episodes and then as a result, we'll probably end up hitting 45 minutes, which was the goal last season. But shorter episodes means uh, shorter turnaround per episode and less editing for me. So that's yeah. nice. Well, the thing is, is I don't know if we consciously are like, oh, we have to talk for a certain amount of time. We just talk as long as we feel is necessary. No, I'm very conscious. <laughs> there it's, I mean, this is what you don't see because there's no video podcast. It's like we'll be 15 minutes into a, into a discussion about King Kong. And I'm looking at the timer like, oh, if we're doing a, you know, at, if we're doing a 45 minute episode, we got half an hour to go and I'm running out of things to say. So the. Uh, I'm never thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> the King Kong episode, I think, was one of our shortest just because I was like, I don't know. I'm bored with well, this that, movie. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say. The movie was kind of boring. Yeah. But it's always yeah. on my mind. How well, long we're going. That's the thing about picking movies that we feel like we should be watching for the sake of watching them versus yeah. movies like we're really excited to see. 
because we're going to have a lot more to say about that usually. Yeah. And speaking of which, we watched a couple things. I mean, we watched many, several things since our last few episodes because we were doing episodes that were interviewing other directors, other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So we've wa- been watching a ton of stuff, not all of which we've wanted to do an episode on. But mm-hmm. we watched recently the Wes Anderson short films that came out on Netflix so those are The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, yeah. The Swan, The Rat Catcher, and Poison. And unfortunately, we watched those a couple of weeks ago, and so they're not quite as fresh. But I had I had some opinions on these mm-hmm. coming out of it. Um, coming, coming right out the gate, we had some nice talks, and I was like, man, I wish we had been rolling <laughs> on our discussion here. So I'll probably to refresh my memory. I think I'm going to have to lean on my letterbox reviews a, a little bit because sure. I wrote those when it was fresh in my mind. But to start off, I mean, we have we did a little tease. We got the Wes Anderson collection here, which is a book that I gave Hannah a number of years ago as a Christmas mm-hmm. gift. I think when we were dating. So it's over five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I'll throw it to you to start because we've talked about Wes Anderson plenty. We've talked about Wes Anderson plenty on other podcasts, namely Carl and Gabe go to the movies. But I want to ask, like, how did you first discover Wes Anderson? When did you first discover that you were in like with Wes Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So or his I, movies, at least not I, him, not him as a person with his goofy looking shoes. Yeah. But I mean, the goof is part of the charm, right? Sure. Um, So I had actually never heard of Wes Anderson prior to film school. He just wasn't on my radar. He's not mainstream. Never heard of him. And then in film school, of course, that's the place you're going to hear about, you know, a little more uh, avant-garde type stuff, a little more um, less mainstream. Auteurs. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. directors. Yeah, and I, I heard people talking about, like, Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, had like just came out when we were in film school. And so that was the big talk and about how, you know, how special his camera work is where he has a lot of like knolling, a lot of symmetry in his frames and stuff. And it sounded really interesting to me. I love aesthetic. (laughs) So um, I definitely was drawn to watch movies because, you know, obviously I want to um, engage in movies that my peers are interested in. And I felt really dumb starting film school. I thought I had like a good understanding of cinema. And then a lot of my peers were talking about all these kinds of movies that I hadn't seen before. So it was a little bit like playing catch up over those course of those years. I made a long list of movies that I felt like I had to see. And I tackled a lot of them, but not all of them. What, what would you say was your favorite movie? What do you think your favorite movie was going into film school, BRTF? Uh, <laughs> I I don't know. Like Willy Wonka, maybe Willy Wonka, Back to the Future, Napoleon Dynamite. Okay, so not bad choices. No, it's but, not like you're coming in being like my favorite movie is The Lone Ranger. With no. Army Hammer and Johnny Depp, where a horse drinks Army beer Hammer, and eh? burps. Um, <laughs> like, I still saw mainstream movies. I wasn't, like, totally out of it. It's not like I was Amish or anything. Mm-hmm. But I, like, went into it thinking, like, yeah, I know movies. And then, like, having not seen, like, The Godfather or Rocky or, 
you know, like any <laughs> any of like these like classics. And I was like, oh man, like I thought I knew, but I didn't. And so they were talking about Wes Anderson. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to watch Wes Anderson. And so I watched the Grand Budapest Hotel and I was floored and I was like, okay, I have to see more of these movies. So then over the course of like a couple of years, I made it my mission to slowly make my way through his um, filmography list. And every single movie I watched, it just made me like, um, like this director more and, you know, his sense of style and everything. And I've since rewatched a lot of his movies. I've been able to see some of them in theater, like French Dispatched, his latest one, Asteroid City. Um, and so it was such a joy to be able to see these short films come out because, you know, at this point, I've seen almost everything he's made, you know, even the short films, the H&M <laughs> commercials with yeah. the train and stuff. So it, it's been a really great journey, you know, but uh, having <laughs> one of his best things, having seen that first, I don't know. I, I mean, Grand Budapest Hotel, that's definitely one of his best. But I mean, I still really enjoy it. I think maybe the second thing I saw was Rushmore. And right. that's that's possibly why it's close to my heart in some ways is because it was fresh and new to me. Hmm. Um, I don't know why I didn't start. Or maybe I did start with Bottle Rocket. I don't remember. But I felt like when I saw Rushmore, I'm like, this is this is for me. You know, so That's so. Very, really interesting that you started with Grand Budapest. I think I started with Royal Tenenbaums. Okay. I'm looking across the room at the paintings right yeah. now. I think I saw Royal Tenenbaums first and I was like, whoa, that was cool. It's great. Eh? That was yeah. like a little a little unique, right? They do Definitely. title cards in that in that one. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. I, I was pretty enamored with that and I was like, this is this is a very interesting movie. I like this. Mm-hmm. And I think after that I saw The Life Aquatic and I didn't like it as much. Yeah. And then <laughs> I think yeah, again, I'm turning my head away from the microphone because I'm looking across the room. But I think after that, I maybe saw Moonrise Kingdom and I was like, kind of middle of the road. Yeah. And then I saw Grand Budapest and I was like, okay, we're back. Sure. We're back yeah. to awesome. And then you showed me Rushmore and I didn't like it. Really, right. at, really at all. It took multiple watchings of Rushmore to start to understand what was good about it. I think, I don't know. I identify with Max Fisher personally, and I see qualities of Max Fisher in you, and don't take that the wrong way, because some people don't like him, but <laughs> he's walking away. <laughs> so you don't, now you don't need to describe that, because Stuff for it's the, a video podcast. Yeah. For the so many listening not on video, you know? Okay, I'm back. So here we have a painting. Do you want to intro this for, I mean, presumably this might be some of our audience members' first time hearing about this because yeah. we're now in visual territory, but do you want to so talk when, about that? So when we started dating, at that point I had seen a good amount of Wes Anderson's filmography, if not all of it. Andrew, having known that I was interested in Wes Anderson, decided to make me a Rushmore painting for my birthday and then every year after that it kind of became a tradition that he would make me a Wes Anderson 
painting for my birthday and now he's kind of locked into it um, well it's kinda, after like multiple years. it's it's nice because it kind of represents how many years we've been together mm-hmm. you know and it, i did it kind of on a whim at first because your birthday came when you know we hadn't been dating for that long and uh we were in a very busy season at the time so I was like, what can I get her for her birthday? I'll get her Firefly on DVD. <laughs> so I told you up front, I was like, I got you kind of a lame gift. I got you a TV show that you've never seen before. I don't know if you'll like it. Whatever. Your heart was in the right place, though, because you knew that I liked Buffy. And that that's, was that's by true, Joss yeah. Whedon. And Firefly was also by Joss Whedon. So it wasn't like it was like out of left field, you know. And I had seen Firefly. So yeah. I was recommending it. It wasn't like yeah. I was like, pick something off the shelf at random and here you go. <laughs> right. And then after after we got less busy, I was like, okay, I need to show this lady how much she means to me and how much I want to spoil her. So I wanted to make something handmade and something a, so sweet. a little, a little more cry. specific. But it wasn't that cool. Cause, what do you mean? Well, was, let me explain. I I kind of plagiarized it That's at the fine. time, but I didn't. I didn't really know what I was doing. It's I was still just nice. I was just trying to paint something fun. I didn't know that I would be doing this for so many years. Now I I just I come up with the designs just based on like looking at a reference photo from the movie. Mm-hmm. But at Those the time, are your best ones. yeah, at the time and the first couple that I made, I just typed in like Rushmore minimalist poster and I just kind of like copied it. I'm kind of, okay. I'm pretty embarrassed about that now, but it's not like I'm going to burn it and redo it. It's, Wait, I mean, you're not it George kinda, Lucas. You kind of ruined the sentimental value. Yeah. So, you know what? Speaking of George Lucas, let's go on a <laughs> tangent right now. Just uh, upon that topic, right? Because like Everybody knows that the whole thing with George Lucas is that he made Star Wars and then revised it. And, you know, he came up with the, with the special editions and changed it. And he then thought the, it wasn't good the enough. The DVD editions and changed it. And then the Blu-ray editions and then changed it again. Mm-hmm. And up until this point, I was kind of like, you know, like, I kind of understand George, but you just leave well enough alone. Right. But then I was listening to the interview between uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino recently. One of the one of the single pieces of uh, film-related content that really locked me into wanting to become mm-hmm, a yeah. filmmaker. I was listening to that, and they were telling the story of George Lucas showing the first uh, rough version of Star Wars without any music to his filmmaker friends and how all of them were kind of like, nah, sorry to hear that, George. You know, you, you really kind of wasted your time on this. And... Uh, Man, that that sucks for you, you know. And the only one of that group who kind of saw uh, something special in it was Steven Spielberg. Sure. And so, putting myself in that mindset of like putting all your eggs in this Star Wars basket of this weird script that you know very few people believed in, and the actors on set were complaining about, and Alec Guinness thought it was stupid, and mm-hmm. then you, you show it to your friends, and they're like, "Oh, that sucks for you, man." And then you you know you're so unconfident in how it's going to do when it premieres that you go on vacation when it premieres which is what happened that's funny putting 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 myself in that position i'm like i i understand a lot more where george lucas was coming from and wanting to change it because he was probably going into that release being like oh man i'm so stupid why did i do everything this way like i wish i I wish i had more time to change it i wish i had more money to change it you know Mm -hmm. because like it's it it wasn't like another movie where maybe like everybody is interviewed after the fact and they're like, yeah, we all knew we were making something special, right? Like happens with some projects. It's like in the moment, it felt like a pile of dog you do, you know? Yeah. So I, 
I understand a lot more George Lucas wanting to change it a ton. I don't agree with it, but I get it. I, I get it as a creative looking back on your past work and being like, oh, why did I do it like that? But I think like, you know, the the whole point of art is, you know, to create something personal that represents something in a certain time in your life. Yeah. And I think like not making it available to the public as it was and being like, no, this is the definitive version is cr like, I don't yeah. like it's one thing to be like, hey, I wasn't happy with it as is you know, I would like to change this. But I think, like, it, you should still have the different versions available. It's kind of an anti-archivist point of view, which is yeah. not something I really agree with. Yeah, I'm all for, like, changing and remixing art. You know, that's great. But, like, being like, yeah, this didn't exist. Let's forget about this. I, I don't agree with. So speaking of remixing art, that was a theme that I was thinking about a lot during these Wes Anderson short films. Okay. On the topic of, you know, why one chooses to adapt something that's a novel or a short story and make it into a film. Mm -hmm. You know, what what is it that you're going to use about the film medium that's going to add a lot to this story here? And I have different uh, answers of how well Wes Anderson accomplished that for each of the four shorts. So let's start with the main one, the one that came out first, the one that, that was the longest. The wonderful, wonderful story of Henry Suga. Okay, yes. I'm not going to cut that out. I'm going <laughs> to leave that in. It's going to be awesome. People are going to laugh, damn it. It is great. So the wonderful world story. of Henry. <laughs> not cutting that out either. Is it? Is it story? Yeah. In my mind, it's like wonderful world. Well, you can call you know? it the wonderful world if you want to. See, that makes more sense because it's alliteration. Are you thinking of the busy world of Richard Scarry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Wes Anderson should adapt that next, you know? Sure. So, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll start out because my, my review of this wasn't, it wasn't too flowery. Um, it was just kind of being, being happy that it existed. So what yeah, I wrote was four out of five stars. God bless Wes Anderson for doing his own thing and mastering the style of combining unique aspects of storybooks and theater and an ad just opened on Letterboxd. So that's enough of that. Um, yeah. So I thought it was good. What about you? Yeah. What I really enjoyed about it. I mean, what I like about him choosing to adapt things. Normally, he's the one writing his own screenplays with you know, a, a colleague of his. Sure. What I like about him adapting Roald Dahl is it was clearly something very personal to him when he was younger. Agreed. He's adapted more than one Roald Dahl story at this point. So even though it wasn't his writing, he obviously felt very connected to it as a director. So taking that on as a director, it's going to feel very personal to him because he already has preconceived notions about what these characters look like and everything relating to that. Like almost from the mind of a kid is, you know, you read this when you're a kid, like what do you picture in your head? And like it's that to the page, which is so great. And I, I love, we were watching the behind the scenes video of it and he talked about how it was like almost like a live theatrical performance yeah. for British television. And I think that's really cool. The way I saw it in my head was it was like a live action storybook. It was exactly. like an interactive yeah. game, like one of those, like <laughs> where you like flip the page and there's like a little animatic yeah, of like. Yeah, like Toy Story CD-ROM or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
it, it had that beautiful quality to it where it had like these lovely tableau images where like you know it's pretty minimalistic and it had like the character walking in and out of the frame and everything and i i just loved everything about it it was stunning agreed uh, the storybook aspect was what appealed to me the most and just for the sake of it i will finish my review i wrote god bless wes anderson for doing his own thing and mastering the style of combining unique aspects of storybooks and theater while rolling them together in the way that only film can accomplish and what i meant by that was the standout visual aspect of this for me was all the sets moving 100%. in and out you yeah. know like you know, like uh, scrolling out of the way on wheels and then the actor either walks forward or even stays in place and then other sets move in behind him. Now, that's something I've seen done in theater. But with theater, you can usually really only do that like once every 10 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Or else it's like... you see like too much of the artifice. Yeah, and like, which can be fun sometimes. Oh, yeah. But, you know, like... When we saw White Christmas at Shaw mm-hmm. Festival, like really they would, they would roll out their sets and roll in new ones, and they wouldn't always pull the curtain. Sometimes you would see it, and it was really cool. But they want to make it worth it, so they wheel in that new set, and then you're there for like ten minutes or whatever mm-hmm. before they move to a different one. But was what was so great about this that utilized the film medium to its full potential was being able to do that so many times and whip the camera around and like still walk through the sets and then have a cut to another area where you can do that even more times in a short uh, in a short time span. Mm-hmm. Right. That I felt was a really good way of utilizing film to do something that you can't do in theater or i mean maybe you could but you would need a massive not a massive theater space and not everybody in the theater would be getting the same experience because they're sitting in somewhere they're sitting somewhere different in relation to the stage whereas with this like the actor's looking directly at the camera so you feel mm-hmm. his eyes piercing you you feel like he's delivering right to you is again something that you really only get from film right i mean it, it's like when you're thinking back to watching theater it's like you have a front row seat yeah. to to a theater experience. Right. It's like what they told us in uh, college, you know, in TV broadcasting. When you're switching cameras, you want to give the viewer the best seat in the house mm-hmm. for sports or like whatever. Same yeah. kind of principle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the great thing about cinema, right? Right. So I thought that Henry Sugar was great. Yeah. But ironically, even though it was a short film thought it was a little long i don't know i i enjoyed every minute of it i would say i i generally enjoy a story within a story aesthetic and i think that grand budapest did that really well Mm -hmm. but this i i and asteroid city also did that quite well but Uh, he does it a lot you know royal tenenbaums uh french dispatch well like i like the way that they did in asteroid city although i found myself kind of caring about the story outside of the story like in the play uh putting on the play a bit more than the inner story with with the color but with this with henry sugar i just felt you know like the inner story and inner story were just getting a little too far removed from the henry sugar story you know, like I understand it's all context, but you can just keep going. You know, you can go as deep as you want and provide further and further context on whatever. But eventually I'm going to be like, OK, well, what's going on with Henry Sugar? Can we get back to him? You know? <laughs> I guess you could say that about any story, though. Go on. And well, you know, it's the same with any, you know, novel movie. You could say that about like Pope Fiction or something is, you know, sometimes you're connecting 
to certain characters, like the main character, more than the side characters that provide a little bit of color to the world, but you just don't connect with them as much. And you're like, hey, well, whatever, let's get the axe. But, you know, to someone like Wes Anderson, they were integral to his adaptation of the material. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, it, it if that's what the original material is like, then I I understand it, and that's fine. I didn't I didn't dislike it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I just you know at a certain point I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> when are we gonna get back to it here? For sure. Which is what made the other three shorts so refreshing to me was how short <laughs> they They're were. Concise to the point. Yeah. Yeah. So, any other closing thoughts on Henry Sugar? I mean. But we'll maybe talk about our overall thoughts on the actors, the shared actors mm-hmm. in, in all four of them at the end. But any other Henry Sugar thoughts? It's so interesting that it didn't get a theatrical release. I think it was really uh, lovely to see in, in a home setting. But yeah. uh, I think it would have looked beautiful on the screen as well. And I, I really loved the costuming choices of Henry Sugar. I really love his red pajamas against like a oh, blue yeah. backdrop when he's For throwing sure. money. It, <laughs> it was kind of interesting, like sitting in a bedroom and watching it on a TV. Because uh, mm-hmm. we, we watched them on your birthday weekend. We went to a little Airbnb and did some have some Hannah-centric activities. Mm-hmm. It's a great um, way to spend the day eating delicious homemade, not homemade, well, homemade at a store. <laughs> <laughs> store made. Yeah, restaurant donuts and uh, Mavericks, know, enjoying, yeah, yeah. yeah, enjoying uh, some really great movies. Yeah, so, we, so it was interesting watching them on a TV in a bedroom and knowing like that's how they were made to be watched. Normally, like you watch a Wes Anderson movie or any movie and you're like, yeah, the director's intention was to have you watch this in a theater. But then watching this, it was like, nope, it's Netflix. I this, mean, this how it I is. I still think it had a lovely theatrical quality to it. For sure. Yeah. So The Swan was the second one. Yeah. You uh, and, you had uh, some bones to pick about. Uh, I picked one. a few bones. Yeah. I did. So my uh, review of The Swan is as follows. Okay, here it comes. And three, two, one. Pop, pop, pop. Oh, actually, my, this review is kind of long, so I'll just kind of speed through it. Well, this does quite the opposite of Henry Sugar. Using the advent of film to help tell this story when really only getting halfway there to what the film medium allows you to do, well, I guess it's not really my thing. This portrayal of the story could have easily been a small set play, but I find that making it into a short film adds very little, as they appear to be just reading the story verbatim. No one is really acting, there's very few visual elements, and the camera doesn't provide much of a different perspective than what the audience would get just watching the story play out on a stage. Long story short, I'm not sure why Wes Anderson chose to adapt this story if he wasn't going to do anything particularly creative with it. It's not inherently unentertaining, but I just find that my imagination would come up with something more interesting on the visual side of it, just reading the story myself than watching someone read it on the screen. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you feel about that? Well, I said this to you in person and I feel like you're like saying it like it's a bad thing. Like there's, you know, it's pretty minimal. It's like a play and it's like that's how he envisioned it. That's how he wanted to do it. Is if you've seen uh, some of his other short films, is a lot of them are like that, where it's pretty minimalistic, where you have like one sort of main character, pretty minimal background, minimal storytelling. Uh, I think a lot of his 
feature films are very, very elaborate with a lot of characters and moving parts and sets. So to see him do a demonstration of minimalism in film and how can we convey this story in an interesting way but in a very minimal way than he normally does I found it to be an interesting exercise and not every piece of work that a creator makes has to be the best of the best it can just be an interesting creative exercise and how can I tackle this differently you know a lot of his movies are super colorful the swan was pretty beige in its palette. And it was just really interesting to see something maybe a little bit different than you would normally see from him. Yeah. So, well, that, yeah. So that was, this is pretty much the discussion that we had as an experiment in minimalist in minimalism. I'll respect it. I just found it kind of strange. Um, sure. The best part, <laughs> easily the best part was when uh, when he was lying down on the train tracks. That felt the most engaging. Definitely. But when they were just walking through the hay maze. I liked it. And just kind of describing this. Like he's just reading the story and nothing was really happening on screen. And like a character would come up and be like, he handed me this item. And he just like holds out his hands and there's nothing in his hands. I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing, but Why? Why did you choose to adapt this if you were just going to do it really like bare bones? I guess that's a question for him, but... Uh, to me, it's a yeah, creative exercise, like I said. And, I mean, we talked about this specifically with the rat catcher, which you enjoyed more, is they did the same sort of thing where they were holding out pretend objects. And the way I described it, it was like a story time for children where... There's like, you know, a librarian reading the book and then some adults are like acting out all the parts where they're like, oh, I'm doing this and oh, I'm doing that. Blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's just like a fun way of telling that story. I'm not saying every story has to be like that, but I thought it was an interesting way to tackle that particular story. I, I get that much. I guess my where I'm leaning is just like if you want to do experiment. With minimalist storytelling, I think that's cool. But maybe write something new instead of adapting something that was maybe like not meant to be told in a minimalist way that way. I don't know because it's like if I think about, you know, a, a novel or a short story that you like or that I like, I don't know. It's like if I was a, if you were a fan of Willy Wonka and they adapted a new Willy Wonka movie and it's like, well, the director chose to shoot at minimalist and so you just have to imagine the chocolate factory it's not actually there they didn't build any sets you as a fan of of willy wonka might be like hmm <laughs> not sure i feel about that i i see what you're saying but also you know since we have seen adaptations of willy wonka right I was, it's with a bad example extremism it would be actually really interesting to see it told from a very simple way because Willy Wonka is a character that's larger than life. Sure. Uh, bad, bad example. I guess <laughs> I I view it as the same kind of artistic change that would be like when they were thinking about adapting Harry Potter and they were going to do it in America with all the with all American actors. Well, they would yeah. be like, okay, you might, regardless of if it's good or if it accomplishes what you were set out to do, you might be pissing off some people who really liked the original, you know, like I guess. if they 
if they pulled something like that with like Danny, the champion of the world, which is another rolled doll story that I read as a kid that I really liked. And they were just, they, they adapted it and they were like, yeah, you don't actually see any of the pheasants. All the pheasants are pretend. I'd be like, well, you didn't do that. You know, yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox was pretty literal for the most part. So we'll see. <laughs> well, I also, I think uh, the there's much of the Fantastic Mr. Fox adaptation that was not in the books. No, they, so. I think they added a bit. I should read it at some point. But mm-hmm. I think that closes out our discussion of the swan. The rat catcher, I won't read my letterbox review because it's just like, hmm, I'm going to think about this one or something like that. But I found that the rat catcher built a lot better. You know, it's sense of, of suspense. And it's what I found more interesting related to the minimalism discussion was the swan was kind of like oh, minimalism across the board. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rat catcher, it, like it was interesting to see what they chose to do with minimalism, what they chose to do with a minimalist take on it and what they chose not to do with a minimalist take on it. Mm -hmm. So like the rat catcher has to do with rats. There's certain moments where like, it's like, Oh, he pulled a rat out of his jacket and he holds up the rat and he's not holding anything up. It's like, okay, interesting. Yeah. And then there's a, like a few minutes later, he pulls another rat out of his jacket, but this time you see the rat and it's just like a statue. It's like a stuffed statue or something like a puppet. That's just standing still. And it's like, huh? That's an interesting choice. Where are they going with this? Then he puts the puppet down and then it springs to life in stop motion. At that point, they decide, okay, now we're not doing minimalism. Now the rat is represented as a animated moving rat. And in fact, it's the rat is like speaking the dialogue. And then he turns into uh, Rafe. Yeah. Finds. Yeah. Then it started getting really interesting yeah the rat you know Riff finds puts in like some teeth and he becomes the rat in the context of the story he was really made to play like some scuzzy weirdo as well yeah we were were saying that he was like he would make a great filch yeah uh, i I saw him i was like wow he's basically filch from harry potter and you were like yeah well he was dumbledore or not dumbledore (laughs) i didn't say that no you said you said yeah well he was voldemort instead and i was like oh yeah he is voldemort i forgot (laughs) Yeah, he's just that good of an he's actor. He's a chameleon. Yeah. So I really like the rat catcher. I didn't have as many specific thoughts mm-hmm. of it. And the narrator, uh, Richard A. O. Eight. I'm gonna probably butcher his last name, but uh, Richie I, a. I I really uh, like that actor, and I I think he's perfect for a Wes Anderson film. So absolutely, like so. Yeah. I really liked it. And do you have any other thoughts on it? I didn't feel like it had quite, like I found the first half a little confusing, but the second half made up for it and how much. It engaged me. Right. Well, I don't want to just like completely like gush about Wes Anderson and like say that everything he does is like completely perfect. But, you know, I have such a soft spot for it that I'm more or less going to say good things about it. Um, (laughs) The Swan, it was definitely a great demonstration and minimalism, but it wasn't his best. Certainly not. The rat catcher was definitely more engaging and it, you know, it took sort of the toyetic storytelling qualities, the minimalism and built upon it to tell a more engaging story. And I definitely think that the rat catcher was better than the swan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think it's on par with poison 
Which we you th- can. You think the rat catcher's on par with poison? Well, maybe I, we just have to rewatch them. Okay. I thought you were. I thought you were going to say what I was just thinking, which is that the rat catcher was on par with Henry Sugar. Yeah, probably. But I mean, poison was great. And why don't we start talking about okay. that? Why don't Why don't you give so, me your take on poison? Poison was, in my opinion, the best one, and I was really shocked. Because I thought that they were going to put all their eggs in the Henry Sugar basket because it was the longest. It was released first, yada, yada, yada. But I thought Poison was awesome. I, and that probably speaks a little bit more to the source material, but they also yeah. filmed it in a really great way. Well, yeah, I think it speaks to the source material because it had a very cinematic quality to it already. There was sort of a ticking time bomb for Poison. Yeah. Um, and it had like stakes to it, which maybe with you know, Henry Sugar, it didn't feel like there was as much stakes. You were just along for the ride for the most part. That's true. So for Poison right away, it's like, okay, this character has a dilemma. There was a very hurried quality to it, which I found really funny. Mm -hmm. Dev Patel, also a really great fit for Wes Anderson films. Um, He has a soft spot for Indian characters. Some of his family friends were Indians, as you can see in some of the earlier movies, like Bottle Rocket, the convenience store that they robbed was owned by the Indian man that, you know, plays a little bit parts in some of the earlier movies before he died. Um, so casting an Indian British character was a perfect fit. And Dev Patel has such a great range. She can do drama, comedy, and it's just a really great fit. Yeah. Um, and I loved his hurried sense of quality, like the way he would sort of just like scurry in and out of the room and like his little uh, runs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His little runs and like turning towards the camera and like saying something and then running away. It was just like my favorite part of it. Yeah. I, I this I've seen Dev Patel in many things. Yes. I've seen him in Skins. Mm-hmm. I've seen him in a lot more comedic. Uh, Life of Pi. Yeah. I've seen him in the first half that we watched of Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. Not the second half. Um, but this was like this was the thing that made me be like, okay, Dev Patel is an international treasure. Of course, you know? yeah. He was a standout performance in all uh, all three, four of these, however many he was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he was in Ratcatcher or this one. Two of them. He was a standout performance of all four of these. For sure. Benedict Cumberbatch was great, but he, he was, was a, great. Yeah. He was a little more monotone, you know, which is uh, uh, as you know. most Wes Anderson roles that, that are. Yeah. Very monotone. Ben Kingsley was nice. Great, yes. great addition. Also a great fit. You know, kind yeah. of in line with the Rafe finds kind of a little more theatrically trained yeah. British and man. I was psyched to see Rafe Fiennes back in the Wes Anderson chair yes. after so great. Grand Budapest Hotel. Had he been in any since then? Uh, I, feel like, I, I feel like no. It feels like he should have been. Yeah. You know? So that, that was one thing that I really liked about all these shorts was that that they used so many of the same actors. It almost felt like you were going to a playhouse for the night. Exactly. And, and they're like, okay, we're going to perform Henry Sugar. And then they do it. And then they're like, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Next up is going to be performance of The Swan, which I don't, who is the main uh, actor in The Swan? That I, can't, I don't know. I can't name remember his off name off the top I, of my head. I he didn't think more, he was so great. He was fine. I, I wouldn't be able to say, you Ru- know? Rupert Friend. Ru- sure. Rupert Friend, if you're watching this, I dislike you as an actor. I dislike you as a person. I it's never rough. want. Hey, it's I have the floor. Okay. I never want you to see you on my television set ever again. Okay. And don't listen to this podcast. Stop it. 
You're burning those bridges. Well, it's a, a Rupert friend is no friend to me. I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. So I definitely want to see more of Rafe Fines in his motion pictures and also more of Dev Patel and... If Ben Kingsley wants to be there, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch wants to do <laughs> the day. Ben Kingsley wants to be there. He can show up you know, for a day, you know. Absolutely. I definitely want to see Dev Patel and like all of his future things. It's a great fit. For sure. Okay. So here's my, uh, here was my letterbox review just for context of Poison. So I gave it four and a half out of five stars and I wrote, well, damn, ended with a bang. Probably the best one of the four, the storytelling, the tension, the artistry, the acting, it's all there. Not much to say other than it was easily the most engaging and entertaining of all the Netflix Doll Anderson shorts. Would really love to see him tackle another feature-worthy doll story like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Danny, the champion of the world, anyone? Yeah, that'd be great. James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> wow, we already have a, yeah. a perfect James and the Giant Peach adaptation. So, Oh, no, is that no is that for... That. Well, it was yeah. it was perfect for a night of watching it on VHS and a sleepover at my friend Tony's house at the oh, time. There you go. So you know, <laughs> when I saw the previews on VHSs of that movie as a kid, it like scared me. I've never seen. It's kind of creepy. It's uh, it's kind of night Nightmare Before Christmas esque. Well, it's bit. you know, Roald Dahl is always like that, where it's kind of it's it's for kids, but it also has kind of a. A macabre twist it's, to it, like it's Matilda. It's for kids, but it's not comforting. You know, you know, Bru- Brucey and the Chokey. Speaking of the Chokey, woof! <laughs> Our audio is getting choked out right now. Yeah. So that's that's something that I do find interesting about Roald Doll stories. It's like, okay, apparently the coffee machine wants to be the subject of this podcast, so we'll just okay, and there we go. No, a little bit more, and we're done. So, <laughs> Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, like, you have kids, I mean, like, supposedly dying in the Chocolate Factory. I think that was the intention, right? That was the implication, but I think it kind of got toned back a bit, where it's like, uh, they're just missing. Well, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you see them walk out, which yeah, is kind of lame. That but... seems like a studio note, where it's like, oh, we can't implicate that the children are, like, killed or missing or anything so we have to see them leave i'm sure whatever (laughs) (laughs) anyway um yeah i mean i don't want to put roald dahl on a pedestal either i was researching roald dahl recently and he seems like an anti-semite which is uh yeah hmm, great of of that era that happened a lot like coco chanel was also an anti-semite unfortunately and as well i saw that he wrote some short stories that are like adult oriented oh yeah when i say adult oriented i mean like sexual like deeply sexual oh interesting and i read the plot summaries of them and they're horrible oh yeah they're like involved like and like and they deeply upset me and it bummed me the heck out that's too bad that sucks. Well, you know, it's the same with any artist is, you know, you'll say that you connect to the material, that it's, you know, it's great that you enjoy the art, but usually like there's problems, you know, it mm-hmm. happens a lot. <laughs> anyway, so all that to say, Roald Dahl is no, he's no genius. He's just, you know, he's no. got some fun, some nice stories and some, some, some nice stories. He's, yeah, has some nice stories and Wes Anderson is a good creative mind and he is able to adapt them into interesting productions. Right. So wrapping up, I would say if you're only going to watch one of these four, I recommend Poison. Which one do you recommend? 
definitely watch Poison. I think The Rat Catcher is worth watching. And, you know, if you're into Benedict Cumberbatch, if you like Wes Anderson, you know, watch all of them. But um, Henry Sugar, yeah. I would recommend this one if you're interested in seeing a story told in a unique, minimalist way that takes takes a lot of the details out that you would take for granted. That, like, you know, somebody holds up an object and you see the object in their hand. Well, in this one, you don't... It's an they exercise in imagination. In they yeah. just have their empty palms. So that's kind of interesting. So the last question I want to throw at you. How do you respond to people who just like blanket statement, hate Wes Anderson, hate his style? And it's like, it's just weird. I don't get it. It's too weird. I understand where they're coming from, but it makes me instantly question their taste in movies just because it's so different from my own is... They just see something that's different from the mainstream and it's just they they have trouble connecting with it mm. or maybe they see it as being weird for just being weird's sake. It's definitely not. It's it's not. It's very deeply personal. Um, just reading um, the Wes Anderson collection, uh, you hear all these interviews. Uh, not here. You, you read <laughs> about all these interviews. You hear them in your mind. They're yeah. so visceral. <laughs> All these interviews with Wes Anderson about why he chose to do things. And it's usually because it's something that he really likes or something that he really connects to. A lot of the motifs in his movie, like he often uses Brit Rock because he really likes Brit Rock. (laughs) Um, Rushmore was shot at his own high school. It was sort of almost about his own experiences in a lot of ways. Him and Owen Wilson about going to boys' school. You know, a lot of these stories are about family dynamics and stuff. You know, a lot of the aspects are not just because, oh, it would be cool to do this. It's like, no, this is his vision of how he wants to tell this story. And he is very exact about how he wants to go about it because he has reasons for why he wants to do things. It's not just to be quirky or weird, but, you know, maybe some people are just not into that. And I guess that's fine, but I find that boring. Even if it was just for the sake of being quirky and weird, it's like, at least he's doing something that's uniquely his. Definitely. You turn on a Wes Anderson movie from the past 10, 15 years, and you can tell it's a Wes Anderson movie. You know, It's like with The Simpsons. You turn on The Simpsons, you know it's The Simpsons because it has such a unique look. Yeah, the you know? yellow characters and everything. Yeah, just because it's doing something unique doesn't automatically mean it's weird or bad or like whatever. Like what I... I haven't loved all of Wes Anderson's movies. In fact, right. the last several that he've, he's made has not been my favorite. I didn't really like The French Dispatch that much. Asteroid City I thought was fine. But I'm glad that he's back in this sort of storybook realm that he explored a bit in Fantastic Mr. Fox, a little mm-hmm. bit with Isle of Dogs, with the stop motion. I think they've always had sort of a dollhouse quality to yeah. them, like Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, and like the ship on Life Aquatic and mm-hmm. all that. But I think that... The subject matter is important to pair his style with. And I think this is perfect subject matter to do that with. Like Henry Sugar, a rolled doll story, something that's like kind of childish with a little bit of an adult edge that's a little bit macabre, but a little bit comforting. Mm-hmm. And is is told with that storybook point of view of like literally somebody telling a story is I think the perfect mesh of, of his style with content. For sure. I think he's at his best when there's a lot of heart to it. 
when there's, you know, a lot of angst, a lot of family dynamics. Like some of my favorite movies of his are about, you know, coping with grief or just growing up or, you know, having trouble interacting with your family members, stuff like that. That's some of the best ones like Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, etc. Right. Well, I think we went a little bit longer than intended, but you know what? It's fine. It just means more editing for me and more content for you. It's easy to talk about Wes Anderson at length. You know, I'm not going to say like every movie of his is my favorite, but I enjoy watching every movie and I would definitely rewatch every single movie because they're so interesting. And, you know, I'm not going to say that his... Style is completely 100% original. It's it's steal like an artist. You know, you take from 100 of your favorite artists. Everything he does is inspired by someone that's came before him. But the blend, the unique blend of what he is doing is wholly him. Yeah. For Uh, sure. You you can see where he's picked up some inspiration. I mean, Kubrick, uh, Orwell. We rewatched Amelie recently. And I was, first of all, I was floored by Amelie. I had seen it before, but when I watched it again this time, I was like, wow, this is like close to a masterpiece. And it You need to let me pick movies more. (laughs) (laughs) It felt very, uh, it felt very Wes Anderson, like proto Wes Anderson. And I let you pick movies all the time. You picked the movie. And they're always great choices. (laughs) You picked the movie that we're going to talk about in the Christmas episode, which was Eloise. And if you're trying to tell me that that was a great choice, well, you just wait, audience members. That was a nostalgic choice. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to sit down or we're going to watch this movie and it's going to be a great cinematic experience. You know what? You know what? Save it for the next episode. All right. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Not to shut you up. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, if you have any love to give, send it to my wife. She deserves it. And Aww. you will see us next time. I promise. Bye. Bye.